We are, uh, we're in a series called Love is a Four-Letter Word. Last week, we began to talk about how difficult uh, it is to love the people around us, and yet that is, in fact, our calling. Uh, we um, noted the fact last week that all human beings are made in the image of God, and that teaching right there uh, is one that came out of a little country called Israel, and in particular from a rabbi who taught in that country by the name of Jesus. Uh, and that, that, that teaching, that idea that human beings, all human beings have dignity and worth uh, is not, was not universally accepted by any means, uh, but today has become uh, widely accepted by people who have faith and by people who don't. But understand, it's a teaching that's rooted and grounded in uh, the scriptures, in the Bible. Uh, in fact, we looked at a passage in 1 John. The apostle uh, John, a follower of Jesus, uh, wrote this, this small letter. And in it, he says, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that's the impetus for our wanting to be better lovers of people, better lovers of each other. Because we have been loved by our God who made us in his image. We are therefore called to love others the way he loves us. But we noted last week that loving other people can be a real tricky business. Uh, some people are easy to love and some are not, right? Isn't that true? Um, uh, some uh, we just warm up to naturally and we find it easy to relate to them and so on. And we in enjoy uh, having the opportunity to speak into their lives and they into ours and loving them is not difficult. Uh, last week at the end of the message, I, uh, I mentioned the fact that we were, this week we were going to talk about the difference between loving a wise person and loving someone who is evil. Do you think it's the same? Do you do the same things in loving a wise person and loving an easy one? And I will be arguing this morning that we don't do the same thing. The strategy, when you want to speak into someone else's life and be a blessing to them or help them grow or help them change, you do that differently in the life of a wise person, of someone who's acting wisely, and in the life of someone who is actually not acting wisely at all but being evil. Uh, there's a Christian psychologist, I'm sure many of you know about him and probably have read some of his books, Dr. Henry Cloud. And uh, Dr. Henry Cloud talks about the church population, us, you know, those of us who are frequently in churches. And um, it's a little bit of a, a generalization. Well, no, it's a lot of a generalization, I should say. But he says this about us. He says, um, he makes this observation that church people are very often kind of nice people. You know, they're pretty responsible people in the community. He says they're generally kind and generous. They pay their taxes. They mow their lawns. They help their neighbor. They raise their kids. They love their dogs. Yeah, that kind of thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get the picture. But he says they often have significant problems in relationships because they assume that everybody else is going to be just like them in terms of relating to other people. They assume that when there is a problem of some sort, that person is going to come to them and going to say something, going to give them feedback of some kind. Sort of like like this. Uh, if, if we're talking or interacting and I'm standing on your toe, stepping on it, you know, you're not going to put up with that too long. You're eventually just kind of look at me and go, ah, Dwayne, you know, uh, you're stepping on my toe. That, that kind of hurts. I wish you'd stop it. And of course you would expect me to say, oh gosh, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, di I didn't know that. I'm glad you gave me that feedback. I'll, I'll stop doing that. I don't want to be stepping on your toe. And so, you know, you give feedback, you say something to the person who's hurting you, person stepping on your toe, and they're going to respond back very kindly, very wisely. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the input. Um, the uh, same would apply in other situations. Uh, say you're in, in work or you're in school or even in your family when somebody's not performing well, when somebody's misbehaving, when somebody's causing a problem, uh, you give feedback and you hope, you expect, you want that person to receive the feedback, make changes, and then act accordingly. Uh, you would expect them to say, gosh, gee, thanks for telling me what you just told me. Thanks for pointing that out. I wasn't aware of that blind spot. I wasn't aware I was doing that. That will help me do better. I'm sorry. And then they change. But here's the problem. Not everybody is like that. Not everybody takes feedback and responds in that manner. Um, and the Bible, for that matter, uh, and also, for that matter, all psychiatric research notes the fact that people are different in how they interact. Uh, the Bible actually talks about three very distinct types of people. Um, and it tells us that you can't assume that everyone is going to be loving or everyone is going to be responsible or everybody's going to uh, take feedback well and then just change and, and grow. 
Uh, it, it will change depending on the type of person you're dealing with. And again, the Bible identifies three types of people. Uh, psychiatry and psychology will nuance this thing to death. They divide people up into all kinds of behavioral uh, patterns and behavioral disorders and things of that nature. But again, the Bible kind of simplifies it. Talks about three basic types of people. Talks about a group of people who are wise, a group of people who are foolish, and a group of people who are evil. General categories. And these three groups of people require different different ways of interacting with them in order to get a good result, in order to help them grow, in order for us to love a wise person or love a foolish person or love a person who is actually acting with uh, evil intent. And um, so I want to dive into this with you. I, this message is about as practical as I know how to make a message because we're going to be looking at strategies for loving people. Uh, and those strategies are going to be different depending on the type of person we're loving. So are you ready to dive in? Okay, so let's talk about a wise person, okay? We'll go with the easy one first. Um, you can think about work, you know, where you interact with people. You can think about family or your family members. You can think about school, people you know at school, teachers, professors, you know, fellow students, what have you. You can think about friends. Think about people who report to you, maybe in a workplace, or think about people uh, with whom you have some responsibility. If you've got a friend, you have a responsibility toward them. They have a responsibility toward you. If you're thinking about your family, you have a responsibility. It doesn't matter if you're a mom and dad, a brother, a sister. You have a responsibility toward them. They have a responsibility toward you. Uh, the wise person, according to the Bible, uh, too, is not necessarily the smartest person in the room. You may not realize that, but wisdom has very little to do with intelligence. Intelligent people can be wise. Intelligent people can be foolish. Intelligent people can be evil. Wisdom and intelligence are not directly related. A wise person, according to the Bible, is primarily a person who responds well to feedback. When truth comes to them, when light is shed in, a, say, some dark area of their life, uh, the wise person adjusts themselves to the truth. Um, this is a silly example, but it helps make the point. If somebody comes up to me and says, you know, Dwayne, you're a horse. I'm going to say, that's ridiculous. I'm not a horse. But uh, let's say in a fairly short space of time, five different people come up to me and say, Dwayne, you're a horse. I might want to think about buying a saddle because of the feedback, the consistent feedback that I'm getting. Proverbs 9.9, instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. You see, teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. Takes in feedback, you see. Wisdom is more about humility and how you handle feedback than it is about IQ, uh, wisdom has everything to do with taking in truth and doing something with it. There's a psychological term. It's called assimilation and accommodation. Assimilation is when you listen to feedback. You, you, you give it careful consideration. Accommodation is when you actually make changes based on that feedback. That is, in essence, what a wise person does. Assimilation and accommodation. They receive feedback. They listen. They're not defensive. They evaluate it. If it's true, if it's valid, if it's accurate, they say, you know what? You're right. I do need to change. I do need to do that differently. They make necessary, helpful changes. They adjust themselves to the truth. They say, you know what? Uh, you mean I'm supposed to be doing it that way? I had no idea. I've been doing it this way. I didn't know that was wrong. I want to thank you for helping me know the right way to do it. I'm sorry. I'll adjust my behavior. I'll do it the right way. That's the first part of being a wise person. Here's the second part. The Bible says, Proverbs 9, 8, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. You give them feedback and they go, wow, I want to thank you for telling me that because I actually want to get better at this. I appreciate you telling me what you just told me. One of the hardest things that I have to do occasionally, I don't have to do this often, but it's to have difficult conversations with people. And often when I know I've got a difficult conversation coming, I'll become anxious about it. It drives me actually to pray. But sometimes those conversations go really well. Uh, other times, not so well. When they do go well, I'll tell you why. It's always because the person I'm talking to exhibits incredible humility. I mean, they listen and they evaluate what I'm saying. Maybe it's right, maybe it's not so right, right? But they, they receive it with humility. And then if there is some truth in it, they're actually grateful. They, they respond and they change. And the consequence 
actually is that our relationship, our friendship, wherever, whatever level it's at actually goes deeper. It actually gets stronger. The appreciation for one another actually grows. Again, Proverbs 9, 8, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. It's just what they do. Now, there's a third thing that happens for a wise person in the process. You know, you've given them feedback. They've received it gratefully. Now they actually do the accommodation part. They actually make changes and they grow. Wise people want to learn. Wise people know that life is a process of change. You never get to a place where you've arrived and no more change is needed. Wise people want to grow. So when a problem comes up, you say, hey, you know, we need to talk about this. Well, there's a sequence with a wise person. You discuss it, they listen, they make adjustment, things get better, things get better, and they grow and they actually appreciate what you've just done for them. They say things like, yeah, man, I'm glad we had this conversation. I really, I know it's difficult. I know it's hard for you to come to me, but I appreciate that you did. The information you just gave me helps me. Let's keep this communication open. That's the attitude. That's the mindset of somebody who is wise. And the truth is, wise people just get better and better and better. The more resources you pour into them, the more feedback that you give them with humility, the more they put it to use. Now, this is also true in families, parents raising children. Sometimes children will... They will receive the feedback. They will act wisely with it. They will make changes according to the feedback you give them. Sometimes they don't do that. Have you noticed that, parents? Sometimes they don't do that. Uh, sometimes children act foolishly. In fact, the Bible, the book of Proverbs in particular, kind of talks about the whole parenting effort as being a process of taking young, sometimes foolish human beings and teaching them through a process how to become wise human beings. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Now, a lot of people misinterpret this. The Bible never recommends beating the tar out of children to get them to do what you want them to do. That's not what the writer of Proverbs is suggesting here. The writer of Proverbs is simply saying, you know what? Discipline, instruction, feedback, things like consequences, which we'll talk more about in a moment. These are important pieces of helping someone who is kind of doing foolish things, harmful things, because being foolish is always harmful. How to help them move more into the category of being wise and learning that they can receive instruction and they can act upon it and they can change and do better. Uh, that's an important process in any family dynamic. You know, in a Christian family, confession too is a relational dynamic that's pretty important. Very important, parents, that you teach your kids how to confess their sin, how to own what they do. How, the, the idea of confession is really the idea of agreeing with. It's agreeing with feedback that has been received. So when we confess to God, we say things like, you know, God, you're right. This is an area of weakness. This is an area of sin. This is an area of brokenness in my life. What I did or what I should have done and I didn't, that was wrong. And I need to change. Help me change, Lord. It's a struggle to change. You see, that's a process of becoming wise. Confession is a key component in that process. Helping a little child realize that they must own their sin. They must confess their sin. They need to say they're sorry to be restored and to be forgiven with that brother, that sister that they've been tormenting. You know, this is an important dynamic. This is a process of becoming wise. So again, talking to a wise person is helpful. Speaking to them is helpful. Raising the issue with them is helpful. And doing that in humility will help them even better to receive it. It helps them grow. It helps them change. And they actually, at the end of the process, they appreciate you more for doing it. Don't we love wise people? Sure we do. But not everybody you deal with is wise. Have you noticed that? The Bible talks about another group of people, calls this group of people foolish. Now understand the fool may actually be the smartest person in the room. They may have the most talent. They may be the most highly experienced, developed, brilliant person on the team, right? But when you give them feedback, what do they do with it? They don't listen. They don't listen. They don't seriously weigh what you tell them. Whereas the wise person took it, considered it, made adjustments, the fool will do exactly the opposite. They'll reject your feedback. They will disagree. They will always tell you that your opinion, your observation, your input is just wrong. They might not use that word. They might say stupid, you know. And they will very often make excuses. Like, well, you know, that's because you didn't give me enough authority. 
or you didn't give me enough instruction, or I needed more time, or I needed more resources, or so-and-so got in my way, or my sister pushed me first. You ever heard that one? Yeah. You get the idea. There's always an excuse when you're dealing with a person who's acting foolishly. And the thing about the fool is they're almost always defensive. They make excuses. They blame. They externalize. They don't really receive anything with humility. That means an open, honest willingness to consider the possibility that you might be right. The problem is never them. The problem is always out there. It's traffic. Traffic made me late. It's the teacher. The teacher's lousy. It's their brother. It's their sister. It's their school. It's their product. The product stinks. That's why I can't sell it. It's the other people they work with. It's your bad leadership. If you were a better leader, I could be better, you know. And when you are having that difficult conversation, they're absolutely anything but grateful. (laughs) Grateful would not characterize their response. They don't say, oh, thank you. Thank you for that input. Thank you for telling me that. In fact, they're thinking, you're an idiot. You are stupid. Who are you to be telling me this anyway is the kind of thing they're thinking. And that's why the Bible says whoever corrects a mocker, a mocker is almost a synonym word in Proverbs for fool. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. So if you're trying to give input to a fool, one way to identify them is they'll never receive it. They'll actually mock the input that you're giving. They'll mock you for giving them that input. In the mind of the fool, the person confronting them is now the one to blame. So see, it's not my problem. It's your problem. You are the problem. Again, Proverbs 9.8, do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. That's simply the dynamic of a fool. A fool gets defensive. A fool becomes divisive. A fool is almost always divisive in relationships. Consequently, they bring a lot of pain, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's at school, school chums, whether it's, whether it's in the family, they, they cause a lot of pain. Even when all you are trying to do really is get a conversation with them where they'll listen and consider their need to change. There's a psychologist by the name of John Gottman. I've mentioned him before. He's done a massive, massive amount of research on marriage and uh, what makes a marriage healthy, what makes a marriage stable and so forth. And he actually says that you can predict with incredible accuracy who is going to one day be divorced. He says, what you have to do are look for four behaviors. When you find these behaviors happening to a substantial degree in a relationship, a marriage relationship, very likely it's not gonna last. Those four behaviors, the first one is contempt. It's a mix of anger and disgust. You are so stupid. What you tell me is always so dumb. Who do you think you are? You know, it's that kind of sense of contempt. Criticism, you know, fires back, you know, these explosive kinds of criticism, criticizes your character, criticizes your intelligence, criticizes your validity, even speak into their life or anything. Stonewalling is the third one. This idea that I need to change, something, something in me, is not right. I'm not going to do any changing whatsoever. So I just kind of stonewall and close you out and I'm completely not receptive to the idea that I would need to go change. And then the other one is defensiveness. I'm not the problem. You are. You see, this is a basic description of what the Bible calls a fool. And if you're married to a fool, you're in a really, really, really difficult situation because they're quite certain you are the problem and nothing in them needs to change. This is, again, the basic description of a fool. Uh, Can't conceive of the possibility that they are wrong. They view others with contempt. You're all an idiot. You're just an idiot. They hurl seething criticism. They stonewall and they are defensive. When you try to talk to them, they get mad. When you try to talk to them, they make excuses. They change blame. It's not them, it's you. They criticize you. This is the fool. Are you with me? You know any fools? Now, hold on to that thought. I love what the Bible says about this. And by the way, all psychological research says exactly the same thing. Uh, the Bible uh, characterizes a fool in a variety of different ways. And I'm just, I put some scriptures together to kind of give us a picture 
an image of, of uh, this thing of living like or being like a fool. Proverbs 9, whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. They're going to mock you. They're going to insult your feedback. Proverbs 15, uh, a fool, a mocker, resents correction. He will not consult the wise. So the, another thing about a fool is they don't ask for feedback. <laughs> they don't really want your feedback. They're certain that if there is a problem, it's you, not them. So, you know, I don't want your feedback is that thing. Proverbs 12, the way of a fool seems right to him. They're convinced I'm doing nothing wrong, but a wise man listens to advice, you see, and measures what they do or don't do with the input of others. Um, Proverbs 15, this is a family context. A fool spurns his father's discipline. This is assuming that the father's discipline is good, healthy discipline. A fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows wisdom, shows prudence. You see, fool is not gonna heed wisdom, not gonna, it's gonna spurn discipline. Proverbs 17, a rebuke impresses a man of discernment. More than a hundred lashes, a fool. What a picture, what a picture. Uh, Proverbs 18, a fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. You know, the, the only one here that needs to talk is me. Coincidentally, that is what we're doing. So I don't know what that says about me. But anyhow, you get the idea. A fool is quite certain that all that really matters is what he or she's got to say, not what you're thinking or what you've got to say. Proverbs 23, do not speak to a fool for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. So you kind of get the picture here. Uh, they're, they're, they're a brick wall when it comes to receiving feedback, let alone responding well to the feedback. The mistake that a wise, loving, responsible person makes in dealing with a fool is trying to talk to them as if that's going to help, you see, because they're not listening. That's kind of who a fool is. They're not listening. Uh, what you're doing is technically nagging, if you think about it. Uh, if you're trying to give a fool input and they don't want to hear it, you're just going to, what are you going to do? Say it over and over and over and over, louder and louder and louder and louder, and you expect change? Now who's the fool? You see, it, does, it just doesn't work. It's not a strategy that works. The fool is not listening. So what do you do with a fool? Well, you stop talking about the problems. They won't listen about problems. They think that you are the problem, or at the very least, that the problem is out there, not in here, you see. You need to have a different kind of conversation with a fool. Now, these principles apply whether you're talking about uh, kind of working with a child who's acting foolish or working with an adult who's acting foolish. The same principles apply. Uh, you need a different kind of conversation. Uh, we'll put this in the context of work. That's kind of an easy one to paint a picture with. You've got an employee at work. They report to you and they've been the fool. You've talked to them over and over and over about changing the way they do something, becoming more productive, more helpful to the company. And they just really aren't listening. They aren't getting it. So what you do is you call them in and you say, Joe, Joe's our guy. Joe is the fool in this case. Joe, uh, you know how, Joe, I've been talking to you about this problem. And right away, they're going to get a little bit irritated, a little bit restless, uh, a little bit disgruntled with you. And they're thinking, yeah, yeah, I, I know how we have talked about this thing over and over. And they're thinking, wow, this moron is never going to get it. You know, that's what they're thinking as you uh, raise this issue. But you need to say to them, you know, we're done talking about the problem that you have, Joe. I'm done talking about that. We're going to talk about a problem that I have. That's what we need to talk about. And right away they're thinking, finally, you know. But you say, my problem is talking to you about the problems. It doesn't help. That's my problem. When I give you feedback and you, and I tell you about what I need to be different, what I need you to change, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I'm not getting through. That is my problem, Joe. I need to know how to make you aware of the changes that I need to see in your performance. I, I need you to help me with that. It's not okay for things to stay the way they are. You have to change. You have to get the job done well, get the job done right. If you're dealing with a child, you have to stop this behavior, you know, pushing your sister or whatever that behavior might be. Because you see, when you don't get the job done well or get the job done right, everybody around you is affected, everybody. So here's the deal, Joe. I need to know a way to make you aware of this so that you can change. Is there some way that I can do that? So you put that ball into their lap. And is there some way to give you feedback so you'll listen? And here's the deal. Nobody's gonna say no. Is there some way to give you feedback so that you'll listen? Nope, 
There's no way for you to give me any fear. They won't say that. They'll give you something. Maybe it'll be, you know, don't come to me when I'm busy. Don't come to me when I'm angry. Don't, you know, come to me with a cup of coffee sometimes. Say, hey, let's sit down and have a chat. Whatever they give you, say, okay, okay, I will do that. I will, I will put that directly into play. That's great. Uh, that's what I will do from now on. But let me make one thing very clear. When I do that, if it doesn't help, if things don't change, understand we're done talking. If things don't change, there are going to be some consequences, maybe a shift of responsibilities, taking some things away from you and giving those responsibilities to others, maybe a change in position, or maybe a termination of the position, you know, if you're talking about the, the workplace. The point is this, with the wise person, yes, absolutely, talk. Talk about the problems. They will listen. Talk will help. But with the fool, stop talking about problems. You've got to shift now to limits and to consequences. That's where the conversation has to go. You see, if this behavior continues, define the limits. This is what's got to stop. Define the limit. Here's what's going to happen. There will be consequences. That's a different kind of strategy, a different kind of conversation than you have with the person who's acting wisely. Uh, some of you now are thinking, well, that's great, but what if the fool, uh, what if I'm married to the fool? That's, or, you know, what if the fool is a member of my family? I can't terminate him. You know, uh, I'd like to, but I can't terminate them. Uh, I can't change their responsibilities. What do I do? Well, remember that thing in Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen: 15, uh, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. So it's a process. It's still the same thing. It's still limits and consequences. Johnny, you can't shove your sister. That's a limit. That's going to be not allowed. When you do that, there will be consequences. Now, Johnny at first is not going to care about, you know, any limit that you place there until they've experienced the consequences a time or two or 10, right? Same principle. Uh, the, it's, it's the same principle because what we are trying to do is to have a conversation with someone who really doesn't want to have a conversation. But we want to have a conversation of love and respect about something that's negatively affecting the family or negatively affecting the business, whatever. And so, again, you know, if you're talking about two adults here, and you talk, it depends on the magnitude of the, the problem. If you're talking about two adults having a conversation, maybe a married couple, you know, you, you say, honey, I, I have a problem. When I talk to you about your rage or when I talk to you about this drinking thing or when I talk to you about your constant absence or uh, whatever it is, I, I can't get you to hear me. I'm, I'm not getting through. Is there a way that I can get you to listen? Is there a way that I could better engage you? And believe me, uh, I, I know I'm a part of this too. So there's probably things I need to change. I'm open to that. I'm open to your feedback and how I need to change in this. But take what they give you. When you ask them, is there a way? Whatever, whatever, whatever they say, yes, you can only talk to me after you've served me a wonderful meal, if it's the guy, whatever, you know. Take what they give you, but then tell them. Tell them. If when we talk, things don't change, I mean, you keep raging or you keep drinking or you keep just disengaging or being absent here in the family, well, then this will be the consequence. They've, they've got to be given a consequence. And again, consequence needs to match the, the seriousness uh, of the situation, you know, I'll be, this will be the consequence. I'm getting up and I'm going to go stay at Sally's house. I'm not going to be here. Or I'll be, you know, seeing a counselor to get some advice to know how to move forward. Or I'll be moving out, whatever the consequence is. The point is this too. There have to be clear limits. This, this is what we're talking about. This is what I need to talk about and clear consequences. Now, um, in the cases where you're talking about things like abuse or what have you, the limits and the consequences get just as severe as the abuse is, right? You might have to call the police. You might have to go to a shelter. You might have to separate. I mean, in other words, what you do or don't do is going to be commensurate with the, the, the degree of, uh, of sin or seriousness of the situation. Generally, the fool isn't going to listen until there are clear limits and consequences. And they're probably not going to listen the first time they experience the consequences either. There has to be a pattern of clear limits and consequences. Now, here's the deal. There's great hope for fools. That ought to get an amen. Yeah. There's great hope for fools. Fools can change, 
but not by using the methodology of talking. That's the methodology, that's the strategy you use with people who are acting wisely. Fools will change with limits and consequences. Oftentimes when consequences start getting discussed, fools will respond. Now understand, fools aren't bad people. Uh, if we got rid of all the fools in our lives, we wouldn't have any friends, right? <laughs> fools can be fine people, but unfortunately, it is true that fools cause a lot of relational pain. They just do because they won't listen. They're not reading how they interact with others. They're not reading well whether they contribute to the team or whether they hurt the team. They cause a lot of pain. And it's largely because they won't listen to truth, to feedback. They won't evaluate it. They won't seriously consider the possibility that something in them needs to change. Fools are not trying to hurt anybody. They don't necessarily want to inflict pain on others, uh, whereas uh, evil people do, you understand. Evil people, uh, that's a whole different category. The fool is usually just avoiding responsibility. And because of that, they cause a lot of pain. That's, that's basically what fools do. They avoid responsibility. They avoid wrestling with the truth. They won't listen. They're not gonna receive feedback. Not my problem, your problem kind of a deal. Evil people, on the other hand, actually want to inflict pain. They want to inflict pain. An evil person wills the bad for somebody. You know, uh, the loving thing, if you wanna love a person, you will the good for them. The evil person actually wills the bad for them. This is the person in an organization who doesn't get their way or they, they can't get control of something they want to control. And boy, they stand up and they're angry and they say, I will get you for this. I will get even for this. I will bring you down. And then they go about trying to do exactly that. An evil person is pretty frightening. The Bible says that an evil person has destruction in their heart. That's the motive. That's the intent. Proverbs describes the wicked individual as someone, it describes them this way, someone whose words are perverse. They're, they're so wrong. They're so dark. The intent is so wrong. They're, they're just perverse. Uh, this is the person who leave the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, hurting others whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. See, here's someone who plots and schemes the destruction of others. And I mean, they actually delight in it. They delight in it. A lot of people get hurt when dealing with evil people just because, you know, if we're not used to dealing with evil people, we can be pretty, pretty naive. The wise person, um, what did we say? What's the strategy for dealing with them? You want to go and talk to them, give them feedback resource them, help them. They will be appreciative. They, they will really uh, enjoy the input and make changes accordingly. With the fool, you don't talk to them about the problem. You give them limits and consequences. And there's hope with the fool. The fool can change. But with an evil person, watch out. Watch out. Anybody remember a rock singer named Warren Zevran? Zevin? Anybody remember that name? Yeah, some of you remember. Okay, yeah, we're all 60, 70 years old. Uh, anyway, he wrote a song uh, that kind of sums up the best strategy for dealing with evil people. It's called Lawyers, Guns, and Money. In the song, the lyrics say this. The lyrics say, I went home with a waitress. That's problem number one. That's foolish behavior right there. I went home with a waitress the way I always do. How was I to know she was with the Russians too? See? But then the, uh, the byline or the repeating stanza in, in the song is, send lawyers, guns, and money, dad. Get me out of this, you see. The strategy with evil people, you can't really talk to them. And they care very little about most consequences. So you better go into protection mode. Lawyers, guns, and money is not a bad strategy when you are dealing with an evil person. Evil people can be dangerous and need to be dealt with accordingly, with caution, being careful. You know, interestingly, uh, this is something too that psychiatry doesn't really address or want to address at all or discuss, the problem of evil in people. You know, where does evil come from? Uh, the, the person uh, 
You know, is an evil person evil because of their nature or because of their nurture or because of both? Which is it, you see? Um, and the truth is, psychiatry doesn't know and uh, doesn't really want to postulate around this. Uh, they're even a bit uncomfortable acknowledging that evil exists. They would rather call things a disorder or refer to it as a disease, you know, something you can medicate, something you try to control, but, you know, uh, they don't really like talking about evil. The Bible, however, does talk a lot about evil. Uh, the Bible talks about Satan, uh, this evil fallen angel that rebelled against God and is the embodiment of lying, cheating, and stealing and, and uh, loves to see harm come to people. Uh, the Bible also talks about the fact that people have evil in them. Um, there's an awful lot in us that's born broken and, and sinful. All of us are capable, left unchecked, of doing some pretty awful things to one another. The Apostle Paul uh, suggests in one place, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica and in 2 Thessalonians, he has a rather, it's a little bit of a cryptic statement, I admit, but, but I think it, it, it suggests something really beautiful. You, you know, you've heard theologians refer to this thing of the common grace of God. This is the grace of God shown to believers and, and non-believers or people who do not follow Jesus uh, alike. Paul writes about this. He says, for the secret power of lawlessness, that's evil. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the world, he means. But the one who now holds it back, that's interesting. Somebody's holding back this secret power of lawlessness. The one who, who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. I, and what I think Paul's referring to here is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves all people enough that he works as a restraining force. He suppresses evil, some places more than others at times, obviously. But the fact of the matter is the common grace of God, we, I don't think we could even survive if the evil in us was not suppressed. It would be neighbor against neighbor. It would be dog eat dog. It would be me versus you and you versus me, you see. And it would not be pretty except for the common grace of God suppressing this power of lawlessness that's already at work. Now, what we do know too is that when someone is intent on destruction, you've got to protect the good. You've got to protect yourself if somebody's intent on destroying you. Proverbs 27 says, the prudent or the wise see danger and take refuge. In other words, they don't just stand there arms wide open, you know, bring it on. No, they take refuge. They get out of the path of danger. But the simple keep going and suffer for it. You see, if you're basically a nice, loving person, you can get taken to the cleaners by an evil person by not identifying the fact that they are evil. If you don't realize what exactly you're dealing with, you can be devastated because of this evil intent, this destructive intent that this person has, and you're not very aware of it or aware of it at all. So again, sometimes lawyers, guns, and money can even make an evil person turn from their ways and have a spiritual awakening. What I really mean too by that is boundaries, lawyers, guns, you know, setting appropriate, proper kinds of boundaries because you see, talking isn't gonna help. And most consequences are not gonna frighten an evil person. You just have to disengage. Uh, this is where the phrase comes from. You know, I'm only going to talk to you through my attorney. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a big disengagement right there. But, but it's setting boundaries because you have to. Because a person has an evil intent towards you. Setting boundaries that protect you are necessary when you're dealing with an evil person. Now, there's one very, very serious wrinkle in everything that I've told you so far. This throws a monkey wrench into everything. You ready for this? You awake? Here's the monkey wrench. There's no such thing in the Bible as we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. No such thing. Because the truth is, you see, all of us have all three of these manifestations in us at times somewhere. Living wisely, being the fool, even being an evil person. We have this mixture of stuff in us and there's almost contradiction in us at times. You know, we praise God with our lips and the next thing you know, we're condemning someone else with those very same lips. James laments the fact. 
You know, there are days when you could tell me, Dwayne, you know, you are, you really messed this up. What were you thinking? I would go, oh man, I'm sorry. I didn't see that. Thank you for sharing that with me. I want to change this. Thank you for identifying that. I'll act very wisely. There are days when you could give me feedback and it pushes some particular button in me and I don't want to take responsibility for that. Maybe it's in some area of woundedness or insecurity or what have you in my life and I might get defensive. I might make excuses. Uh, I might blame others or worse, I might even want to hurt you back. Don't make me want to hurt you. (laughs) Now I'm just curious. Has anyone ever hurt you in some way? Just really made you angry and and you thought, man, I'd love to let the air out of their tires. I'd love to key their car. Anybody here ever had thoughts like that? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. I'm good. I'm glad because otherwise it'd be just the pastor, but um, (laughs) do understand about that. That's wanting to inflict pain on people. That's evil. That's a kind of a soft example of evil, perhaps, until it's your car that gets keyed. But I mean, you know, that's, that's evil, evil behavior. It's in us, it's real. And the point is all of us are at times, all of these things, wise, foolish, and evil. And the Jesus follower is in a lifelong process of trying to move from that place of being evil, that place of being foolish to that place of being wise because that is who Jesus is. He's the wisest individual that ever lived. That's what discipleship is. Learning to identify foolishness in me, learning to identify evil in me and then repenting of it, turning from it, changing my behavior. That's how we grow. That's how we grow. You can only really grow spiritually by learning what wisdom is and acting like a wisdom, a wise person. You know, the whole process of discipleship, hearing from God, that's feedback. God, what do you, what do you want to say to me? How do you want me to change? What's broken in me that you, you want to kind of finger and, and, you know, and help me change. And then listening to that, taking it in, you know, uh, processing it with humility and, and then saying, okay, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna accommodate. I'm gonna make changes. I'm gonna grow. That's spiritual growth. That's being a disciple. Now, as we deal with other people, whether wise, foolish, or evil people, one of the great concepts that Jesus championed is the idea of forgiveness. You know how important forgiveness is? I would suggest you can't even have healthy relationships in your life if you haven't learned to exercise uh, with some strength and some vigor this thing of forgiveness. Um, you, you understand forgiveness when Jesus talked about it in his day. It was not a popular concept. Ancient culture looked at that and said, what? Forg- forgiveness is just weakness. You don't forgive people who have wronged you. You get even. Forgiveness? No, 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 no. You see, we know there are people where uh, we, we need protection. I mean, if an evil person's coming at you, uh, we'll, we'll put forgiveness on the back shelf for a moment. You, you need to get protected. We also know that sometimes in dealing with a fool, we can forgive their behavior, but we don't want to do anything that would just allow them to not experience the consequences of their bad behavior because that's not going to help them grow. We, we get that. So, so what do we do? I mean, if we are suffering from the behavior of a fool or suffering from an evil person, uh, and, and maybe some of us here have been suffering for a long time at the hands of a fool or at the hands of an evil person, what do we do? Well, for starters, we, we remember this, that God knows all about dealing with fools. He knows all about dealing with evil people. You know, our story, in other words, is similar to his. You remember Jesus gave to and Jesus constantly loved many people who did not receive his feedback, did not receive his teaching, did not receive the truth that he brought, and it caused all kinds of destruction. Uh, There were people that Jesus taught and loved on and tried to relate to that just shook an angry fist at him. They wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, they eventually nailed him to a cross, right? The point is God knows all about loving wise and foolish and evil people. He knows what it's like to suffer too at their hands. 
When it comes to loving people who hurt us, we have to be careful too to distinguish between forgiving people, which is something we should do. We should forgive the way we've been forgiving, the way we've been forgiven. And we can forgive really anyone with God's help. But we have to distinguish between that and, uh, and this thing of having an ongoing, continuing relationship, close relationship with someone who doesn't want to have that relationship. Uh, you know, it takes two people to have a healthy, growing relationship. Two people who exercise forgiveness back and forth toward each other. Two people constantly seeking reconciliation. To get to the place of real health in a relationship takes two parties receiving feedback, two parties willing to listen, two parties willing to change, and two parties willing to constantly be serving up forgiveness. You'll have a really healthy relationship if you've got two people doing that toward one another constantly. But if you're in a relationship again and you've tried and they don't want to come around and they're still hating you, blaming you, believing you, are the sole problem. Well, you can forgive them. I would even, I think, argue that you need to. That's healthy for you. That's, that's the healthiest place to be. You can say, I forgive you. I, I want this relationship store, restored. I, I want to get back on good terms with you. But if they never say, I'm sorry, if they never say, you know, there's some truth to what you say, if they never say, you know, I do have an issue. I do need to grow. I do need to change. I do need to accommodate because of some of the things that you're saying. Well, you're not really going to have much of a relationship with. Might need to be boundaries there. You see, forgiveness has to do with the past. Forgiveness should be free. Lots of forgiveness offered. God forgives us. We should forgive others. Trust has to do with the future. And healthy relationships are constantly being built on a foundation that gets ever deeper and ever greater, a foundation of trust. Trust is earned. It's earned by owning your mistakes. You know, I will trust you more when you demonstrate to me that you, you can see your mistakes and change. And likewise, you'll trust me more if when you point some things out to me, I'm willing to go, yeah, man, that's awful, but I think you're right. I think I need to change. And then when you see that change happen, you trust me more. I trust you more. Trust is earned by owning your mistakes, by apologizing for them, by repenting, you know, turning around and by changing and growing. Jesus talked about this thing of forgiveness one day. There's a lot of confusion in the church sometimes around this thing of forgiveness. Forgiveness is good. For, we, are, we are commanded to forgive others the way we've been forgiven. That's a very, very good thing. But sometimes we don't understand about boundaries and forgiveness. That's kind of what I'm hammering away at here. Jesus said in Matthew 18, he said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Have that conversation. Maybe he'll be wise. Maybe he'll receive this just between the two of you too. In other words, don't announce it from the rooftops. Yeah, I'm gonna go talk to this jerk who's been doing this to me. You know, and, you know, no, no, it's just, it's between the two of you and it's with humility. And then it says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. That's reconciliation. That's what you want. If he receives feedback with humility, if he repents, if he listens, maybe he'll point some things out to you. You need to change. But the relationship is restored, you see. But boy, if he refuses, well, you can forgive him, but you, you can't really restore the relationship. There's not much you can do. You can pray and should. You see... It's the same dynamic between us and God, friends. Our, our friendships, our dealing with each other, it's the same dynamic as in our dealing with God. Do you want to grow as a Christian, as a Christ follower? There's only one way to do it. And that's own the junk that's inside of you. In the first service, this is so gross. I'm sorry, it just came to me. I thought it's not even in my notes. We talked about pus pockets. Gross. But there are these pus pockets in us, you understand. Ugliness, festering, infected sin. Things I don't necessarily even want you to know about that are in me, but as I relate to you and get to know you better, you start to sense that yeah, there's some brokenness in this guy. I don't want to hear it from you. I don't want you pointing it out to me. I don't want God pointing it out to me. And we actually protect pus pockets sometimes. This is just an area I don't want to change, don't want to grow, don't want to hear it, don't want any feedback, just bug off. But it becomes maybe the issue in my relating well to you or you to me. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. 
Christians will stay stuck around those pus pockets. Sometimes for years. Sometimes forever, never seeking help, never really owning it, never really hearing from God. Never letting the forgiveness that we have from Jesus around those pus pockets liberate us to just go, you know what, you're right. This is ugliness in me. This is one of those great reasons why Jesus had to die for me on the cross. And I need to change here because this is killing me. It's killing my relationships. Just as importantly, more importantly, it's killing my becoming more like Jesus. I mean, these things, it could be in your area of finances. It could be in your marriage. It could be a parenting problem. It could be any number of kinds of problems that we just protect and we don't want to change. But you know, to grow as a Christian, these are the areas that we have to own, expose, and cry out to God, help me, forgive me, change me. And this is how we serve and love each other. <laughs> you know, the wiser you become, the more you invite input from other people. Now, again, not, not, not all input that everybody gives you is any good. You got to evaluate it, right? You receive it humbly. You evaluate it in light of, you know, truth and scripture. And if there's some truth in it, if there's some truth in it, then you need to deal with it. Accommodation, make changes, listen to God, make the changes that need to be made. If you don't, here's the deal. You're stuck. You're going nowhere. Spiritually, relationally, you're just stuck. It's not gonna get better. It's gonna get worse. And that is the very thing Jesus wants to free us from. So, you know, the way we deal with him is the way we deal with each other. I'm quite certain God wants us to um, become better lovers of him and better lovers of each other. Uh, this is why love is a four-letter word because it's dealing with pus pockets. It's ugly business. It's ugly, ugly, ugly business. But it's a beautiful thing. It's just a really beautiful thing when somebody does open up and change and let Jesus work. And, and that is how we become better lovers of others. Amen? Pray with me. Father, uh, we're in this series, God, and we're reflecting on how difficult it is to love others well. And we're looking at the fact that there's a lot of stuff in each of us that makes us not very lovable. And uh, we need the forgiveness of Jesus to, at work in our lives. We need to own who we really are, where we're really stuck. Uh, we need you to change us, God, in ways that let us be freed up and honest. Ways that let us repent. Ways that let us celebrate the forgiveness that Jesus alone can give. Because that frees us up, God, to turn around and, and love others the way you have loved us. Just continue to speak to us and guide us, God, as we, we think about this thing of love and the difficulty of love, the dirtiness of loving the way you love us, the sacrificial way in which you love us. All of this, God, we pray in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, our friend. Amen.